Frank, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here at the uh, New York Bar Association. Uh, Frank, I thought that was a brief introduction. You could have mentioned that I was my high school valedictorian. So what if I was homeschooled? You know, what's the big deal? You know, I, don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Um, normally, I like to really engage in humor like that and start off just on a positive note in order to build relationship with the audience. But in this case, to talk to you about President Trump and race in America, to me, is just not a funny subject. Uh, it's no joke. Uh, to tell you the way I feel, I never imagined that 10 years after America elected its first black president, I would be writing a book about a president who is taking us backward in terms of race relations in the USA. But, you know, there's just no getting away from the fact, the reality that today, the current president is dividing us by race, exciting white nationalists in our midst, putting down blacks, Latinos, especially immigrants, with foul language from the biggest bully pulpit in the world. And of course, his racist policies, well, I think they're scaring so many people, but you know, to be quite specific, they scare me. Uh, so this is an intriguing point, inflection, in terms of American history that we're all living through, given that we have had a Barack Obama, and now we have the man who said Obama was totally illegitimate, not even born in the country, and shouldn't have been president. I, I, but at the same time, I find it an inflection point in this regard. I guess in a way, surrounded by all these 18th century figures on the wall, I'm reminded of Charles Dickens who said this is the best of times and the worst of times uh, after the French Revolution. But I think it's a good description of what we all are living through, but specifically what people of color are living through here in 2018. Because in my lifetime, I'm 64, I've seen the first black billionaire in the USA. I've seen the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the first black Secretary of State, as I've mentioned, the first black president. I've seen musicians from Michael Jackson to Kendrick Lamar rise to the top of popular culture in this country. Uh, you turn on TV, black athletes from Shaquille O'Neal to uh, Stephen Curry, even the controversial Colin Kaepernick all over the place in advertising for all sorts of products. I've seen black actors like Denzel Washington, Jennifer Hudson win Academy Awards. You know, this is in my lifetime. This is unprecedented. So I can keep going. More blacks and Latinos currently serving, especially after the midterms, in the US Congress than ever before, more than ever. Black high school graduation rates climbing now to an all-time high, more African-Americans getting college degrees. So this is all positive. I mean, it's like I was saying to you before, the best of times, but then the worst of times. Scratch the surface and you'll find a nation recoiling at watching the KKK and neo-Nazis march in Charlottesville appalled that black people still have to remind everyone in the wake of deadly police shootings that black lives matter. So in 2018, 64% of Americans told NBC polling that racism is now, once again, a major problem. 77% of black people told pollsters this year that they have a negative view of race relations in America. That's, by the way, 30% higher than it was uh, in 2014. And according to the FBI, we've seen a spike of 17% in terms of hate crimes in the last year. And in terms of anti-Semitic attacks, it's 37%, uh, especially, I think, in the, and I'm not sure that it includes what happened at the Pittsburgh synagogue recently. So you can understand why people are so troubled 
by race relations at this moment. And of course, it then, speaking to you as lawyers, people familiar with current affairs and the law, you know, it, it makes you wonder, how did a country that made so much progress on race so recently, then so quickly fall into such a deep hole of racial division, tribalism, and from my perspective, regret at what has taken place. I think all of you sitting here, and I'm not assuming any political affiliation, but I think all of you, and if you're being honest, would say that the answer to this question is the rise of Donald Trump. He's the one who built his political career, as I mentioned earlier, by suggesting that President Obama is not qualified to be president because he wasn't born in this country. Uh, he's the one that questioned, you know, whether or not Obama was even a Christian. Trump followed that so-called birther movement by starting his presidential campaign by calling Mexicans criminals and rapists. He also attacked an American judge, I say that to you given what you do, as being unable to deliver justice because the judge's parents are Mexicans. And it was, of course, Trump who recommended that Muslims be temporarily banned from entering this country. So I don't have to remind you that in terms of the culture wars part, apart from the policy, but just the culture wars, it's Trump who has incited these divisions with actions such as calling out black NFL players protesting police brutality by kneeling during the national anthem. He called them sons of bitches. He tweeted that Omarosa, who worked for him and then left, was acting like a dog and responded to the terrifying display of white supremacy in Charlottesville by saying that fine people were on both sides of that tragedy. And that's why a poll done this summer found that 58%, it's incredible, 58%, almost two-thirds of Americans disapprove of Trump's handling of race. A political poll had a similar result this August. 55% said race relations are worse under Trump. And here's the closer. A Quinnipiac poll this summer found that 49% of all Americans say Trump is an outright racist, which I find unbelievable that half of the American people would say the president is a, I mean, that's a pretty strong term to attach to anyone, but half the American people say, oh yeah, he's a racist. Yet Trump, with a tone of mockery for blacks, asked white supporters what black people had to lose by voting for him in the 2016 election. And that's the title of the book, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? So he first uses this phrase before an all-white audience in Dimmendale, Michigan, a fairly rural area. He described blacks as people unable to see that by giving their votes to Democrats for such a long time, they've ended up with trash-filled streets, bad high schools, uh, bad schools in general, no jobs, and high crime. Well, obviously, uh, this is a wildly inaccurate portrait of how most black people in America live. Contrary to that dire assessment, the reality is that this is one of the great achievements of the civil rights era. Uh, you know, I wrote eyes on the prize, and I can tell you this is, to me, just unbelievable that somehow he doesn't get this, but 40% of black American households today earn between thirty-five dollars and $100,000 annually. Another 12%, so that's 35, plus this 12% that earns between $100,000 and $200,000 annually. So if you put that together, what you've got is almost half of black America is either solidly in the middle class or beyond middle class at this juncture. And yet Trump addresses black people as if they are all living, as he's put it, in worse conditions than Afghanistan. Somehow he didn't notice that black men and women have led some of America's most successful companies, McDonald's, Xerox, Time Warner, Merrill Lynch. This, these accomplishments would astound my parents, 
not to mention my grandparents, they would be, they would say this is unbelievable. But again, Trump only wants to talk about poor black people. And as he was doing when he first used this term, what the hell do you have to lose? He's suggesting not to black people, not to a black audience, he's not even speaking via media to black people, he's speaking to a white audience in front of him, almost all white, plus playing to social media in such a way as to say that these poor black people are a problem for white people, for good, honest, patriotic white people that you have black people who are in fact a threat, who are either going to rob you, mug you, insist that they are entitled to big social spending that will drive up your taxes. He talks, by the way, about Latinos, not as people who come hungry for the American dream, willing to work two and three jobs. He only wants to talk about Latinos as members of MS-13, a murderous gang, and specifically murdering innocent white people. He seems to have no interest in an accurate portrayal of what minority life and dreams are about in America today. That's why you have to understand that when Trump declares that black people have nothing to lose by voting for him, I think it is a very much a racist play that divides us as a nation, that in fact alienates people from one another, makes us less able to understand our common destiny as Americans. This sort of insult fits with his campaign slogan, I'm sure you all know it, Make America Great Again. And I think that line was an attempt to create sort of a nostalgia for the dominance of 1950s social hierarchy, especially white men at the top and people of color and women below. So, you know, just thinking back, blacks and Latinos fit into Trump's 1950s picture as sort of happy-go-lucky folk, content uh, to be second-class citizens, dancing even if they lived in segregated neighborhoods, and, of course, willing to send their children to broken-down, segregated schools, uh, having no political voice or power to object to being kept out of white-only unions, and no voting rights leading to the reality that they had no political power. So that's why Make America Great Again remains, even more so than what the hell do you have to lose, racial and political dynamite in our midst. That saying, Make America Great Again, is celebrated by David Duke, former head of the Ku Klux Klan. It's celebrated by alt-right white supremacists. It's a flashing signal of white opposition, even resentment towards the nation's racial progress and the likes of a Barack Obama. Well, let me stop here on a personal note. We're a small group, so I, I hope that I can just relate to you and we can have conversation. We're going to have time for questions at the end. As I mentioned, I'm 64, so I'm about eight years younger than our president. And when I was talking to you about the best of times and the worst of times, it just seems to me that race relations, the progress in race relations, is the story of my life. You know, the way I think of it is my dad, my father's education, and we lived in Brooklyn, but his education his housing opportunities, his employment opportunities were so limited by race. So if he saw me living in an integrated neighborhood, I live in Washington, D.C., uh, he'd say, you know, son, that's a very different world. Um, that wasn't possible in my time. If he knew that my daughter attended Georgetown Law School, he'd say, wait a second, that school doesn't accept black people. It didn't accept black people until the late 60s, and then only a few black men. He'd say, wow, this, that, you really live in a different world. 
And then if I said to him, oh, Dad, here's a picture of me at lunch at the White House. He'd say, wow, that's unbelievable. And he'd say, now, who's that other guy, the other black guy in the picture? And if I said, oh, that's the President of the United States, he'd say, that's not a different world, Juan. That's a different universe. That's unbelievable. So all of that change that's taken place in my lifetime, from my father to me, my lifetime, also had to take place in President Trump's lifetime. And yet, even though he had a front row seat to see this amazing progress, he talks down to black people and other people of color when he tells, black, tells white audiences that these black people they live in such destitute conditions. They're so, so badly informed, so stupid, that they should be voting for him if he's not accusing them of, in fact, voter fraud. So in the world, according to Trump, the success of minorities that I've been talking to you about today simply has added to the war on white men, as he says, or sometimes he calls them the forgotten men, Trump claims to speak for these people, especially people in the, over the age of 55 who tell pollsters that you know, they feel the country's changing too fast, especially in terms of its demographics. Too many black and brown people, uh, too many Asians. Trump's words, to me, his worldview is an explicit call to white identity politics. His logic is based on historical distortions as a, of America as a country made great only by white Protestants. And in his opinion, those good white people, again, are burdened by the poor, the uneducated, and criminal blacks and Latinos. Trump's words, especially after that march in Charlottesville, have made for a simple-minded, made-for-TV and I, I'm on cable TV, so I'm in these debates all the time, is Trump racist? And as I said to you earlier, the Amer half the American people are willing to tell pollsters that's the case. But I, you know, even as he's calling immigrants coming from black and brown majority countries, uh, people who come from, as he put it, and I say this because I don't see any young people here, shithole countries, even as he says that uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters a black woman has an extraordinarily low IQ, even as he's talking about uh, Latino gangs as a bunch of animals, the reality is that he is somehow further dividing, exacerbating, and intentionally so, racial tensions to his political benefit, to secure I guess what is now between 35 and 40 percent approval in terms of a political base going forward. But I don't want to debate whether Trump is racist because I think it shuts down conversation. I think people close their ears. People who are Trump supporters just say, oh, it's an attack on Trump. You're just part of that left wing. It's incredible given I work for Fox. Uh, but you are one of the Trump haters, you have Trump derangement syndrome, all the rest. And I, so I try to stay away from the label racist. I would rather have the bigger debate, which is Trump's impact on a nation that is growing more racially diverse by the day and trying to cope with the rise of 21st century style racism. So I wrote this book, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose?, because I think we need a flashing red light, all of us, that asked us to stop and see the very real threat that Trump poses to racial progress, not simply the culture wars, oh, is he racist, not racist, what did he do, what did he say, how did he dare bully that person or call a name of that other person. But I wanted to focus on everything from the justice system to fair elections that protect voting rights for all people to the quality of schools and educational opportunities available across the board. And look at Trump's impact in all these sectors of American life. The book is structured in a way 
uh, on the basis of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which has provisions in terms of education, housing, employment, and the like. So every one of those provisions is covered in the book. I think, let me just give you an example of this. One of the ways that I try to tell the story is by using people who made tremendous sacrifices to respond to the question, what the hell do you have to lose? Because I hope that for readers of the book, they would come to see that people have made tremendous sacrifices in order to move us forward on the very difficult subject of race relations in the USA. For example, let me mention, since I'm here at the New York Bar, a New Yorker uh, who's in the first chapter, a man by the name of Bob Moses. He grew up in Harlem. He spent much of the early 60s, though, putting his life at risk in the backwoods of Mississippi. Uh, he tried to register poor, rural black people to vote. And in order to vote at that time, you probably know as an educated group that black people, especially in the Deep South, had to pass impossibly difficult voter registration tests that event effectively barred them from the franchise. And the old system kept political power in all white hands, seg seg segregationist hands, in fact, uh, while keeping black people as close to slavery total, in total subservience. Uh, and to me, it was not only archaic but cruel. And by the way, those white segregationist politicians in the South somehow never acknowledged that much of their wealth, everything from the agriculture uh, to the industry, was based on slave labor, free labor, free of cost, except, of course, for the cost of brutal oppression of human beings, and, of course, in direct contradiction to our nation's founding principles of all men, they don't say women, but all men and women being created equally. Even today, there are so many people who are willing to minimize that contribution by black slaves to America. Uh, recently, when Michelle Obama spoke, if you'll recall, at the Democratic National Convention 2016, she got criticized for pointing out that as the first black woman to serve as first lady of the USA, she lived in a house built by slaves. Her critics replied that those slaves, and here I'm quoting, were well-fed and had decent lodgings, as if that excused keeping people in chains, breaking apart families, denying them economic opportunity and education. So the truth about race in America is just the start of what black people have to lose. And that's why in this book, for example, in talking about someone like a Bob Moses, I want to remind people that sacrifices have been made at great cost in order to make advances when it comes to race. Uh, you know, you have to remember that Bob Moses was the advance guard of what becomes Freedom Summer, and you may have heard of three young men who were killed during that time for standing up to the white separatists. These three young men, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, Mickey Schwerner, died. Shot, killed, buried in an earthen dam at the start of Freedom Summer by Mississippi police and Klansmen. And in keeping with the denial of harsh realities, there's a recording of Jim Eastland, the senator from Mississippi, telling President Lyndon Johnson that the triple murder was nothing but a publicity stunt by northern troublemakers. Well, that didn't stop Bob Moses. But it's a horrific tale. And again, it's just a part of the dramatic story of black people trying to register to vote at the risk of being in this case, down in Mississippi at that time, thrown out of their homes, having their businesses shut or burned down by violent whites, getting shot by night riders, and you probably know, crosses burned, guns fired through their windows. So it's also in that very environment, as if, you know, what do these black people have to lose, that someone named Medgar Evers, who was the head of the NAACP in Mississippi, was shot and killed 
again, for trying to stand up for not only voting rights, but equal rights in the Deep South. So there's a lot to lose, a lot to be lost. And of course, when it comes to something like education, blacks and Latinos have so much to lose. As I'm standing here, I, earlier today I was talking about whether or not members of the Second Circuit are automatically members of your New York bar. I'm told, of course, that's not the case that people have to join uh, and pay membership dues and the like. But the reason I asked the question was because I wrote a biography of the first African-American on the Supreme Court, Thurgood Marshall. And Marshall was on the Second Circuit, lived for a long time here in Harlem. And Marshall played such a key role prior to being a federal judge uh, as the lead counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And in that role, helped to break down segregation in many areas of American life, uh, including the Brown v. Board of Education decision of 1954. But you should know that before Brown, before Thurgood Marshall, there were 150 years of struggle. The old Confederate states of the South, for example, responded to the 54 decision with a violent, massive resistance movement intended to stop school integration, much as they had been fighting since the Civil War to keep blacks out of what they considered to be white schools. And even after Brown, as I say, the, that kind of angry resistance continued. You may recall that President Eisenhower had to send the 101st Airborne into Little Rock, Arkansas to defend the Little Rock Nine for simply wanting to attend Central High School. And you know, again, we come back to people who have made tremendous sacrifice to advance us as a nation on this difficult topic of race, 1962. James Meredith, an Air Force veteran, facing down literally hundreds of segregationists to enroll at the University of Mississippi. You know, these sacrifices I'm describing to you, these are sacrifices that made a difference. It's not as if someone just did something heroic and then, gee, we didn't see any change as a result. No, as I'm speaking to you today here in December of 2018, keep in mind 13% of Ole Miss's undergraduate population today is black. 14.6% of Harvard's freshman class last year, African-American. And as I mentioned at the very start, record numbers of young black people and Latinos now graduating from college in our country. So again, to me, this is what all of us have to lose, and it's a lot to lose if we buy into a framework that says, what the hell do these black people have to lose? Because, goodness gracious, they have higher poverty rates than white people, and therefore somehow are inferior or somehow to be uh, treated as undeserving. Again, my point here is to stress that real people, male, female, white, black, northerners, southerners, put themselves on the line for extraordinary gains that have, been a lot, that have allowed America to come closer to being coming the promised land for all those who seek opportunity and equal rights for all. Now, I, I just wanted to add in here, given the events of the last week, um, you know, we're talking about the death of President George H.W. Bush. What a contrast this president is to President, the first President Bush, 41. 41 had trouble with race, too. 41 initially opposed the 64 Civil Rights Act and then had to change his position when he came to the 68 Fair Housing Act. He said the most important speech he ever gave was the one when he went back to Houston as a congressman and explained to segregationist constituents why he felt it was a moral and patriotic issue to support equal housing for black people in this country. And then, of course, he changes course one more time with the Willie Horton ad in the 1988 presidential election. And people say, this is a horrible ad, so racist. 
the man who produced that ad, Lee Atwater, the political consultant for the Republicans at the time, uh, on his deathbed made that the one apology that he issued, said that he knew that it was wrong and had divided the country. But apparently, that example had little impact on the likes of Trump. And of course, George H.W. Bush is someone who spoke to black audiences like the NAACP, the Urban League, someone who had black people in his cabinet, as I hope you know, put Colin Powell in position to head the Joint Chiefs of Staff and to run the military. Somehow, the Colin Powells, the Condoleezza Rices, leading black conservatives, if you'll notice, have nothing to do, no place in this Trump administration. Instead, what you get is Trump continuing to talk about, especially, voter fraud, and, and with a specific uh, attention to black voter fraud. But this week, did you notice that in North Carolina, the voter fraud that was uncovered was done by Republicans? Oh my goodness, look at where the actual instance of voter fraud is that can be proven as opposed to Trump suggesting that he did not lose the popular vote to Hillary Clinton, but it was just a consequence of blacks and immigrants voting illegally and fraudulently. I say all these things to you because I hope that you understand we're living in a moment of real history and that we're all participants in this history. One of the things that struck me about President George H.W. Bush's funeral was talk of his character, of his decency, of his humanity, and the suggestion being, well, it's quite a contrast to the current president, but all of us have an opportunity to, in fact, fill the void, to stand up and to be decent, thoughtful, caring Americans who have a sense of our common destiny and common purpose and understand that this is a changing country in terms of demographics. This is a country with growing income inequality, but that is not a call to finger pointing, bullying, or tribalism. It's a call to people who would become active, solution oriented, and in fact, and here I use a phrase that's been often derided by President Trump, become kinder and gentler and points of light to each other in this society at this fairly dark moment. I wrote a book about the civil rights movement, as mentioned earlier, uh, called Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years. I wrote that book now 30 years ago, a sign of my age, uh, still in print. You know, I get questions about it all the time, but one of the big questions I get is, Juan, why did you call that book Eyes on the Prize? And I tell people, after I snark at myself and say, hey, I guess this person doesn't go to church too often, that in fact it's based on an old gospel song. And the lyrics in this song are so telling because it says, keep your eyes on the prize, hold on, hold on. I know the one thing I did right was the day I started to fight, hold on. And what I'm saying to all of you at the New York City Bar this afternoon is that we have to understand as we occupy, as our hearts beat in this moment, December of 2018, we are in the midst of history. We are living, active souls who can make a difference even as we have a president who is so dark and threatening and would divide us and have us at each other's throats. That we can, in fact, stick our hands into the muck of this current political environment and try to shape something that is useful, positive, productive, that brings us together, that serves us in terms of the American dream being real to every child without regard to race, without regard to religion, without regard to ethnicity. To me, we have to keep our eyes on the prize as we go forward. Thank you very much.
want to thank you for bringing us a call to action and a lot of points of light. So if there are any questions, I'm sure there should be. Well, I hope that this book, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose, does some of that. I think that uh, Frank said he had read the book and that it is a reprise in so many ways of things that were key stories from the civil rights era. And I've seen people criticize me for saying, well, you're just repeating things that have you written about before or whatever. And I think they missed the spirit of it. As I said to you, I divided the book on the basis of provisions of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And so in each of those cases, I want to remind people of the episodes of sacrifice, people who martyred themselves for greater glory, uh, in terms of greater American glory, the society, the nation's interest. Um, so if you look at this book, you will find reminders of what took place. It's intended almost as a refresher. And I, but the thing is, that's for you and me. But for so many young people who maybe never read Eyes on the Prize, saw on the Prize, or, and it's sad to say, so many young people in school, the history books don't cover this history, this civil rights history. Um, I would hope for them it would actually be new information and tell them, hey, people who s suggest that there's nothing to lose for black, white, Hispanic. These people are ignoring history. They're ahistorical. Uh, and so that's, I think so much of that is in this book, and I hope you'll take a look. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I don't see that there's any contradiction. To me, his expediency is based on the idea that you can appeal to racial grievance and racial insecurities or sense of threat from the other. And here, I would say that one thing I would add to your very apt description of us as an American people, our history, is that we have different demographics today. I think that's why he starts off with the attacks on immigrants, but specifically Mexicans, because now the largest minority group in the country is Latinos. Uh, that's a big difference. That's something that's fairly new. Obviously, for most of our history, blacks have been the largest 
minority group, the other. But the other has now become, for him, Latinos. Uh, and those attacks, I think, are just, you know, base and crude and unfortunate. Um, but it does play on the idea that change is coming fast, and if people feel that somehow they've, they see a decline in manufacturing industries or they see that there are more blacks in colleges and universities or more Latinos, um, that somehow they are being cheated or treated badly, which comes back to what, exactly what you were talking about in terms of the, the backlash, the response to progress being made by black people. So I think that that exists. The thing that stands out to me is Trump's willingness to play on that anger, fear, grievance, sense of grievance among a certain group of white people, mostly people without college education, people who live in rural areas of the country, that's his stronghold, who really don't know people of color or have sort of stereotypical caricatures of them in their minds. And that's what he has used uh, to build a political base. And to me, that is so different. Uh, and I might add, he has turned the Republican Party basically into a white people's party at this juncture. So that's all very different. Even though all that you said is true, I think we live in a different time in terms of the demographics, in terms of his willingness to so openly exploit race to build a political movement and to do away with the Republican Party, I think what we have now is the party of Trump. He was a populist, but not in terms, I mean, his argument was with the American Indians, as in, you know, killing American Indians and the like. Um, but this, to me, is in the modern context, and I guess I would suggest to you um, that even as we've had presidents play racial politics here or there, uh, hide behind uh, a hand in terms of legislation and the like, um, in terms of appealing to racist, racist sentiments, I don't think we've seen anybody in the modern era who, as, who is as blatantly and um, threateningly racist in our, as President of the United States. that he realized, it's not, it, what it is, <clears throat> excuse me, Asians are the fastest growing in terms of entry into the country at this juncture. I don't think he's dealing with that. Uh, and I think that the, you know, it's so curious. Uh, he's using, for example, his Justice Department is using Asians at the moment to attack affirmative action institutions, but in specific Harvard. Um, and even in the Asian American community, this is very divisive. Uh, and people are not content to hold themselves up as some model minority so different than other immigrants or other minorities in the society. Um, but I think in Trump's distorted mindset, oh, the Asians are almost honorary white. They're, they're achievers. And so, I mean, there's no reality to that except if you look at, like, colleges, the state system out in California, you look at elite Ivy League universities, you see a higher percentage of Asians than there are in the population. But that's not representative of the entirety of the Asian population in the USA. But for Trump, I think it's somehow, oh, well, they're a little different. But again, this is me trying to get into the mind of someone whose racial attitudes are perverse. I don't think he's dealing with any reality here. He's dealing with his perception as part of sort of a white elite who believes that white men are the ones who are under attack in the society. I think, you know, speaking to you here in New York, let me just say, I think this is a, a Queens kid who always wanted to become part of the upper echelon of Manhattan society, the Wall Street folks, the big developers, uh, the big media buyers, you know, uh, he wanted to be part of that society. And there were no blacks, no Latinos, no Asians in that society. And so he wants in, and he doesn't see the possibility, given his upbringing, 
that GDS, um, you know, the head of Carnegie Hall right now, the chair of the board, is a black man. In his world, that doesn't exist, or that black man is an exception, not representative of the tremendous growth in terms of the black middle class in American society. Yes. Well, in fact, we were just having conversations about sentencing reform. Uh, and as you know, Jeff Sessions, uh, the former attorney general, was standing in direct contradiction to the notion of sentencing reform. Uh, I don't think this new uh, acting attorney general is going to be much different. But what we've heard is that Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, and others, uh, there is a coalition on Capitol Hill that's bipartisan in both the House and the Senate that favors criminal justice reform um, and sees it as an opportunity not only to help people with reentry into uh, you know, our, our economic life, giving them some ability to stay out of jail because they would be honestly employed and engaged, but also in terms of dealing with things like mandatory minimums, dealing with the consequences of drug wars um, that have debilitated, I think, poor black and poor Latino communities. So to me, that's just very critical. But let me take it a step farther. You know, the Trump Justice Department says they no longer are interested in pursuing consent decrees with local police departments to try to improve community relations between police and uh, poor black communities. I mean, that's where this police brutality takes place. They say, no, we're, we're not supporting it. We're not encouraging it uh, in any way. So you have local police, and in many cases, mayors, city councils, sometimes even governors, now having to step into that void and encourage better relations between police and community. Again, I think there's an opportunity for smart, capable lawyers to get involved uh, and make a difference. Again, look at what the courts have been doing with regard to immigration and saying to Trump, it, from the Muslim ban all the way to the treatment of people at the southern border, um, you know, this is an outrage uh, that you would separate children from their parents, that you would tear gas a desperate group of people. Obviously, he demonized them for his political purposes in these midterms that made them into a threatening group approaching the border as if they were some army set on invading us. Um, so again, I think that we've seen not only lawyers but judges uh, stand up and say no. And I think, again, so these are just some examples that come to the off the top of my head as you ask a very, uh, a very able and smart question. Yes. Well, you know, it's hard to, I mean, it's my business, what I do every day is politics. And, but I will say, I mean, you look at Trump's base, it doesn't vary. It's between 35 and 40 percent on most days. Um, and we know who they are and where they are. Uh, the big difference in the midterms was that the suburbs went blue, uh, especially white females, educated white women, uh, who had gone for Trump in a state like Pennsylvania, which is always thought of as a blue state. Um, you know, they went for Trump. That's how Trump got the Electoral College uh, votes that he needed. So moving forward toward 2020, uh, what you're looking at is trying to dis discern who will Trump run against? Because 2018 was really a referendum on Trump, and I think that's what you saw in terms of the suburban white women especially saying, I think all this behavior, the, not only the racism, but the misogyny is a bit much, and we want to check on Trump, and we'll, the House of Representatives is that check now, uh, given their subpoena powers and the like. Um, but going towards 2020, I think then it becomes a matter of who's running against Trump. So it's not just a referendum on Trump, 
It might be to some degree, but it really is a matter of what's the option to Trump. One X factor in this, of course, is the economy. I write a column for The Hill every Monday. For those of you who are online, please take a look. And last week, I, my column was about the fact that GM uh, took 14,000 jobs away, the fact that the stock market has lost all the gains that it's made in this year, 2018, uh, the fact that we now see the housing sector slowing, manufacturing slowing, that 2019 could be the year of the Trump slump. That too, that's an X factor in my mind because it's going to definitely speak to people who believe Trump's rhetoric about I'm the great businessman who's going to bring back so much prosperity and jobs to America. President Obama recently said he created more jobs in the last 20 months of his term than Trump has in the first 20 months of his presidency. But that's not the message out there. His rhetoric, Trump's rhetoric is I'm the guy who has brought back prosperity to America. Well, I don't know about that reality, but he's not going to be able to deny the reality if the market continues to slump as a result of his trade wars, as a result of um, his tax plan that blew up the deficit. Um, and so again, that could impact the way that we understand politics in 2020. For the Democrats, that's too hard, you know, I mean, right now, obviously, uh, you know, Joe Biden is the choice. It's, it's pretty clear. He's the choice before the, the fireworks begin. Uh, and Bernie Sanders is a choice uh, right behind him. And then it kind of like goes down into single digits for so many of the choices. But we're going to have a lot of people out there. Uh, news this week about President Obama having met with Beto O'Rourke and Andrew Gillum two sort of up-and-comers in that. In the state of Iowa, um, you haven't, uh, of all the counties, I think there's 70-something counties in the state, when they surveyed Democrats, people in 50 of the counties said they want a new face, they want a younger, more energetic Democratic personality. Uh, they don't want to go back in time, so they might, they don't want to, certainly don't want to go back to Hillary Clinton, but they may not want to go back to a Joe Biden uh, or Bernie Sanders. They, 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 they're looking for something different. That's why I say in 2020 it's going to be a matter of contrast and choice as opposed to simply a referendum on Trump. Juan, would you make your announcement today? Oh yeah, that's it. What a day that would be. Did you go to Haverford? I did. That's what I said. Oh.
Sure. So again, you know, speaking to the whole notion of Haverford and engaging people uh, in an honest debate, uh, I think that there is a bubble, and Fox represents, in so many ways, the Trump bubble in terms of media, uh, because you do have personalities like Hannity, uh, Laura Ingram, you know, uh, Tucker Carlson who are just, to me, on the Trump bandwagon and perpetrate Trump's language and thoughts and defend it to no end. But when you have a bubble, it seems to me there's all the more need for people like me who are willing to go in there and engage, take on the argument. I was listening to you and you said, well, but I don't think you can be effective because you don't have an equal platform to those larger personalities. So. Not entirely, no. Yeah. But uh, again, in response, what you have is a situation where no one tells me what to say, no one limits me in terms of the ability to speak out, and I think that contrary to what you said, people actually are interested, even people who are on the conservative side. I'm not sure on the people who are like, you know, Trump now and forever. I'm not sure that their ears are open. And I have so many moments of disquiet about people who ignore facts, people who close their eyes to realities, and I think they are in that audience. But I do not think that it's the case that that's the entirety of the audience. So that you have people, and I've, I encounter people because being on TV I'm recognizable, People who say to me, you know, they're tired of having to rationalize support for this guy and that they do hear me. So it's not, it's not the case that I am shouting into a vacuum. The reality is Fox is the number one cable network in terms of audience in the United States. And those people on a daily basis get to hear a contrary point of view. I would agree with you that I'm not shaping the paradigm. I would agree with you that I don't have the hour-long uh, platform given to the likes of Hannity, but there are people who hear me, and I think it's so important that there's someone there to say, hey, what you're hearing here is a bunch of bull. What, how do you deal with the, the final issue? 
network. Well, maybe we have an answer. Maybe we have Tucker Carlson. But we also have Ron Williams. Well, I don't. I think you'd have to be. I mean, given what you just said, you're quite aware that I don't have the platform or the paradigm on my side as I engage in these conversations. I like to joke with people that, you know, I, I'm not only in debate against conservatives, but to oftentimes, if putting this five aside, I'm dealing with a conservative host in addition to battling the conservative, and the paradigm is against me, and I get the, the, the lowest seat and the worst lighting. Uh, I think that that's all true. But again, to me, if you're willing to take up the cross, if you're willing to fight a difficult fight, it doesn't mean that you're not having effect. It doesn't mean that it's not a worthy engagement. And to my mind, I have so many scars, but I think it's a worthy fight. I just think there's such great talent. I'd love to see you fight that fight. I'm so sorry about the NPR issue, for example. Yeah, I, you can't imagine that. Right. But the fact is, I would find any other place to make those arguments. Even another more fair, you don't have to go to the New York Times or be at a post or whatever, a so-called liberal bastion. But anyway, that's where I would go. Well, you know, that just, to, just to finish this thought. Oh, sure. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. I thought he was such a, a ladies' man. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Oh, I see it every day. I mean, people call him out on it. I mean, you know, just even beyond that, I mean, the, the number of lies that he tells that are then chronicled by the New York Times, Washington Post, journalists around the country say, he just lied. He just tells lies. It's, it, it, it's out there. Now, the difficulty with this, coming back to my earlier response, is that there are people who don't believe it. They just say, well, uh, you know what? I don't, and you see this now from more and more Republicans, absolute refusal to challenge Trump on something that is so concrete and provably true, um, instead saying, oh, well, maybe he's right, and that's what his base wants, and if I challenge him on it, then I am in danger of losing the Republican vote, and certainly Democrats are not going to vote for me. So you see people then forced out or retiring. We had a record number of retirements in the House this cycle. Uh, and you see people like uh, Sanford in North Carolina who were trying to challenge Trump lose re-election because they don't have Republican votes. So instead you get people buying into sort of a Trump orthodoxy and he says, he, you know, it's not conclusive, the scientists, and again, this is a lie, but that's what he says and his base buys into it. When you ask me, though, you know, what can be done, I think, again, it's incumbent on all of us to know that there is truth out there and that this is in the minds of not a few scientists, but 90% plus of scientists globally, not just Americans, a real phenomenon taking place and having terrific consequence at this moment for all of us. Um, how you deal with people who don't want to hear the truth, it's very difficult, but you have to keep moving. I don't think we can give up. We have time for one more question, one last question. 
Yes. Yeah, I mean, that was my response. I think we, so the way I think of it is in terms of the demographics and the politics uh, of America and the education level, not only of blacks but whites uh, at this juncture versus that juncture. But I'm curious about what you said with regard to media uh, because it's not just minorities who have much more access to information uh, it's all of us. Uh, it's a torrent. It's an open fire hydrant of information that pours forth, and Trump is part of that with his Twitter feed and all that. Uh, and it just washes over us to the point that there's this new phrase, gaslighting, that you know you just keep saying things true or not true, and oftentimes intentional, intended to deceive or confuse people. Uh, and it makes the fact that we have all this information available to us not of consequence because people don't know what to believe, what's true or not, and then they resort to tribalism and say, well, he's my guy or he's not my guy, and they mock each other. You know, to me, instruments like Twitter and the like have become absolute sewers. Uh, the kind of what they call trolling, the use of racial invective, of misogynistic language, and the mockery, the bullying, I think it's poisonous uh, to the idea of real discourse and real information and conversation, honest debate. So it's ironic that, yes, we have more information, but in some ways it's made us more stupid. Uh, and I think that when it comes to something like race, this is very true. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.